Take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to tell you a joke at the beginning here because this sermon is going to be, you know, the kind of sermon you're going to wish you didn't have to come and listen to. So here's a joke. You ready? Are you ready for a joke? Yep. All right, here's a joke. So this man, he died and he went to heaven. And when he got up there, uh, St. Peter, he said, you know, what do you want to do? He said, well, I can kind of see the place. So he says, well, I'll show you some of the, I'll show you over heaven. So he went over to one part of heaven, and there was uh, some people all gathered together, and, and they were very, very ritualistic. They had, you know, a little incense going, and they were having communion. The, the, the pastor, the leader, was dressed in, in a robe, kind of high church, and, and the, the guy said, who, who are those people? And he said, ah, those are, those are Lutherans. And he went, ah. Went over to another part of heaven, and there were some people all gathered together in a corner, and they were speaking in unknown tongues, you know, and just really having a, a, a riotous time of worship. And the guy said, now, who is, who is that? And he said, those are Pentecostals. And he went, ah. And then he went over to another part of heaven, and there was an unusual group of people. They had their eyes closed and their hands over their ears, and they were singing Amazing Grace as loud as possible. And he said, who are those people? He said, ah, that's the Baptist. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm telling that joke for a reason. It's because when this sermon's over, you're going to think, Terry thinks only Baptists are going to be in heaven. <laughs> and and I, I don't mean to say that. But I, I have talked about this several times and told you that I was going to give a sermon about the spectacular gifts of the Spirit, the, the, the sign gifts. We've gone through Romans chapter 12, we talked about the serving gifts and the gifts the Holy Spirit gives us to serve Him, to serve the Lord in our local churches. But then there's another element, another category of gifts called the sign gifts or the spectacular gifts. Sometimes theologians don't like to call them sign gifts because that's not what the Bible says, but it's just a category, a way to think about them, but we could call them the spectacular gifts. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm concerned about the encroachment on our church and just all churches in general, by charismatic influences. Now, there are two kinds of Pentecostals and two kinds of charismatics. Pentecostal charismatic kind of means the synonyms for the same thing. There are two kinds of them. First, the first kind is a very orthodox kind of Bible-based Pentecostal or charismatic churches. They hold the Scripture in high esteem, and they abominate perversions of their, of their view of the gifts, specifically the Word of Faith movement. Now, the Word of Faith movement is the worst, most vile thing in the evangelical world today. Uh, it, it's not quite a false gospel, but it definitely is, hey, have some strange, some strange views. And uh, so that's the second group. There is a group of the, of, of the more Word of Faith-oriented type of people who have a, a worldview that has produced this, this phenomenon. They believe that Donald Trump is a messianic figure who is a part of biblical prophecies, etc. Now, now that's, that's an error. That's an error. <laughs> but but there are, there are these, there's this big extreme, there's large extremes within the movement. Now, the charismatic movement technically is a restoration movement. And I say it's, it's and technically it's a restoration movement because it came on the scene because they saw that the the Orthodox churches were seen to be cold and dead. And so they're looking for something outside of orthodoxy, looking for something that was new and fresh because Orthodox Christianity seemed to have 
to be dull to them. And I'll get into more of the history of that in a little bit. But the charismatic world, just when you talk about the charismatic movement or Pentecostals, however you want to describe it, the charismatic world is so diverse. It's so diverse that within the charismatic movement, you'll have some real wackos. Now, I'm going to give you some names of some wackos, and if this is your favorite person, then, you know, I'm sorry. But here, here's, here's, your, here's, my, here's my favorite Texas wacko, uh, Kenneth Copeland, down there at the, uh, in Fort Worth. So he's, he's, a, he's a screwball. That's all there is to say about it. He believes some very unusual things, and uh, if you want to read about him, you can. You listen to him, you can. He's just, he's just, he's a, he's an unusual dude. And then you have everybody's uh, favorite international Floridian, Benny Hinn, or as he's known by some people, Brother Dragon Breath. <laughs> I guess you guys don't know about that, but when he breathes on people, they fall down. So, Dragon Breath. You guys are making this sermon very hard to give. <laughs> then you have Kenneth Hagen, uh, who is uh, in Tulsa. Jesse Duplantis, T.D. Jakes. They, they, these all represent a certain kind of charismatic. And on the surface, they sound very like Orthodox Christianity, but beneath and in some of their teachings, they have, they have extreme positions. And some, and some of them are unscriptural. Of course, there's always some truth mixed in, you think. So that's, that's kind of the extreme edge of the charismatic movement. And then in the middle of the charismatic movement, you have a lot of wonderful people who preach the gospel, love Jesus, and people who we have fellowship with, right? Now, just so you know, here in Sheboygan, uh, Life, Life Worship Center across town, that's the Assembly of God Church, they're a charismatic church. But Sam Agee, who's a pastor there, I'm not afraid to say it, that dude, is, he's probably my best friend in all of Sheboygan. We play basketball together on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We eat lunch together. We pray together. I, I bounce ideas off him. He bounce ideas off me. He is my partner in ministry. We work together uh, once a month. We take a school bus up to the, the intermediate school, and we get a busload of third, fourth, and fifth graders. We bring them down here, and we tell them the gospel, and we, and we sing together. We work together for the gospel's sake, right? So I'm not saying that everybody who is a charismatic is extreme, I'm saying that within that group, there are extremes. Just like in the Baptist tradition, there are extremes. There are people way to the right and way to the left. It's a, Christianity is very diverse. And so it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, uh, to yet, yet to go case by case many times. Now, just to be honest with you, even more honest with you, uh, Sam Agee, is, he's the first Pentecost I've really ever known really well. Really well. And, and you say, well, how can you talk about Sam in this sermon? Well, because Sam told me he's not going to listen to this sermon. <laughs> because a lot of the things I'm going to say in this sermon are things that I talk to Sam about. So just not me sitting in my office, you know, getting all the anti stuff. I mean, I talked to Sam. I, said, I told Sam at Basketball Thursday, I said, Sam, you know, I'm really hoping that one day you'll be as good a basketball player as me. <laughs> I told him, I said, Sam, I'm going to give this sermon Sunday about why I think the gifts have ceased. And he said, well, I wish you wouldn't do that. I said, you know, I'm really conflicted. <laughs> I said, I'm really conflicted about it, too. And we talked about it. And before I decided to give this sermon, I said, Sam, I said, why don't you tell me who I can read that's a Pentecostal that makes a case for Pentecostalism from the Bible? 
He, re- he recommended to me three books. I read all three of them. A History of the Assembly of God, The Luke and Holy Spirit Theory, and another book called Azusa Street Through Today. And I, I read all that stuff. I went back to Sam with my questions because I value his opinion. So I don't want you, so when I'm done with this sermon, I don't want you to walk out here thinking, yeah, Terry, he, you know, he's just a hater. Not a hater. Everybody say it with me. Terry is not a hater. There you go. Tell all your friends. <laughs> so, so what I'm, what I'm concerned about, the extremes. It's the, the, this, the middle I'm not too worried about, but it's the, the extremes. Now, within the charismatic movement, you'll even have people who are baptistic who are also charismatic. I'll give you two examples. These are, these are people you, you probably never heard of, but you may have. One is a guy named Sam Storms who pastors a fairly large church in Oklahoma City. He's a Baptist, Baptistic. He doesn't have baptismal sign, but he's a Baptist. He, their church functions like our church does, and they believe that the gifts are in action, all the gifts. And the way they follow the gifts or practice the gifts, they stick strictly to 1 Corinthians 14. They try to go as close to that as possible. And then the second person is a man who's now in Louisville, Kentucky. He pastors a church called Sovereign Grace Church. And uh, it's called, uh, his name is C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney also, a Baptistic guy, uh, believes, believes what we do about so many things, except about the gifts, there's a difference. So, with that caveat, I offer the following sermon to you uh, for your consideration and for your thoughts. You can think about it. If you want to talk to me about it later, you can. Hopefully, I can deliver this in a helpful way. So, uh, let's pray together, then I'll give you this sermon. Father, You know the work that lies ahead of us, and I pray you'd help me to communicate these truths in a helpful way. And I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now let's talk about Pentecostalism in the apostolic time, how the spectacular gifts worked in the early church. Now when Jesus died, he went into the grave and he rose on the third day, and then he said, I want you guys to stick around Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes... You're going to be empowered to be my witnesses in all the world. And so the church, Jesus, while he was on the earth teaching the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, you might say, he says he gave them all his teachings. But then in John chapter 13, John 15 and John 16, Jesus said, after I go away, I'm going to leave, I'm going to send to you, the authorized version says, the comforter. Newer versions say, I'm going to give you the helper to help you understand these things. Because all of the, uh, the, uh, the 12 disciples, I guess it would be the 11 real disciples, because Judas, Judas, really, Judas was unconverted. But though, to those 11 disciples, Jesus taught them so many things, and it's, it's hard to remember everything, right? You ever been to the store, brothers, your wife says, she gives you a list and she says, one more thing. And you go to the store, and you get everything including the, the one thing, but you forget to get something on the list. You ever had that happen to you? It's hard to remember everything. You say, want to write it down. My, my daughter, Lacey, recently, she said, Dad, I was supposed to pick her up somewhere, and I said, what are you talking about? She said, she said Dad, we had a whole conversation about picking me up. And I said, no, we didn't. Yes, we did. I sent you a text. No, you didn't. Look at your phone. Yeah, you did. <laughs> to which I said, from now on, send me an email. <laughs> So we can't remember everything. And so Jesus, he says, I'm going to send somebody to you to help you. Now take your copy of God's word and turn to John chapter 16. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says to the apostles. 
about this coming of the, this helper. John 16, verses 12 through 15. John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it unto you. So the Holy Spirit is going to come, he's going to declare things to the apostles in a unique way. Now, this is a key passage to help us understand how the Holy Spirit was working in the post-resurrection era. Now, so what this means is that the apostles, they received things directly from the Holy Spirit, a direct divine revelation about things they did not know beforehand. Now, there are a couple examples of that. In John chapter 6, verse 45 Jesus says that the Father will teach every man some things. This is John 6, verse 45. Jesus quoting the Old Testament. As is written their prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, this is an interesting passage because it tells us that every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ or trusts Christ as their Savior does so because God the Father personally, through the Holy Spirit, instructs us in the truths of the gospel. It's a unique, it's a unique function of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, w- I grew up in church. I went to church every single Sunday. And I heard my dad yap every Sunday. Every Sunday. But there was one particular Sunday when, when, when the yapping that I heard was an empowered sound, in my opinion, and it was like the Lord was reading my mail. Like the Lord was really working through my father in a way he hadn't before. And I can say without a doubt that the Lord called me to himself and I trusted Christ as my Savior because the Holy Spirit dealt with me in a personal way. And those of you who are here and who are Christians, you probably experienced something similar. Where all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Lord spoke to you in that special way and you were taught by God. You were taught by God. Now Galatians chapter 1 verse number 12, listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Now, Galatians is one of the first books of the New Testament that was ever written. It's probably the second. The first was Matthew, and the second is either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians. Probably Galatians. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he is, he is uh, he's defending his gospel teaching. And he's saying that I preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are saying to him, Oh, yeah? Well, where did you learn it from? Did you learn it from the apostles? To that question, Paul says no. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 12. Listen to what God's Word says. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the Apostle Paul saying, oh yeah, you guys want to say I'm just teaching John's doctrine or Peter's doctrine? Oh no. The one who taught me the gospel that I preach was no man. It was Jesus by revelation, by opening of his mind. Now, we don't usually think about that, but 
we don't really we, we don't consciously think of it, but that is how we got the New Testament. The Holy Spirit speaking to and through men saved people, telling them things they didn't know beforehand. B.H. Carroll, when he was commenting on the Paul's uh, uh, letter to the Galatians, sometimes Paul will say things, and he'll say, as it is written, or as it is said, but you go in the Old Testament, you can't find it anywhere. You're like, well, where is it in the Old Testament? B.H. Carroll says the only way Paul could know these things is through revelation. Revelation. So this revelatory, miracle, prophetic communication ministry was how the early church, it's how we got our New Testament. Now, they had to function that way because when the early church was there at Pentecost, they only had a small Bible. They only had 39 books of the Old Testament. That's all they had that was there. But there was more that they needed to know. Now, are you guys still with me? Okay, I don't, want to, I don't want to lose you. The Old Testament is about God's relationship with what group of people? Israel. That, old is, that relationship God had with them in the Old Testament was a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. And the terms of that covenant are expressed in the law of Moses. That's going to be Exodus all the way through the end. There's these terms and conditions. It was a promise given to Abraham... Israel is a partial fulfillment of the, of the promise to Abraham. The church is the full fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So the terms of that old covenant are expressed in the Old Testament. And that's what the Old Testament is about. It's about being God's people on the earth. And God says, if you're going to be my people, I want you to live this way. And that's why in the Old Testament, there's all these strict rules about what you can eat, what you can wear, what you can do. I mean, and it's, it's incredibly detailed. It's so detailed that the law actually tells us what to do after we go to the bathroom. That's how detailed the law is. Because God says, hey, you're mine, you're all mine. Every part of you is mine. So, those terms are all expressed in the Old Testament. But then, in the church age, from Pentecost forward, we come into a new era, which is a new covenant. A new covenant has come to the world. We are in a new covenant relationship with God. The old covenant had terms and conditions that were stated. And, they, and just to summarize, they were like this. God says, if you're my people, behave this way. If you don't behave this way, you're out. Terms and conditions. The new covenant is different. In the new covenant, our relationship with God is through Jesus Christ and all the performance elements, all the do's and do nots have all been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So our relationship with God in the new covenant does not rest upon our behavior. It rests upon our faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has done all the work for us. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in. Everything that we enjoy in the new covenant is because of the work and obedience of Jesus Christ. And all that is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the new covenant. Now, the new covenant came into effect in the resur- after Jesus rises from the dead. That's what Hebrews says. Now, 
So the new covenant is in effect, and there are terms of the new covenant. But at Pentecost, all they had were how many books? All right, class. At Pentecost, how many books of the Bible did they have? They only had 39. And those 39 books had the terms of which covenant, old or new? Old. But a new covenant has come. So now we need a new statement of terms. And that's what the Apostle Paul gives us in his first 30 years of ministry and then the other, other writers between 30 A.D. and 100 A.D. through the Holy Spirit gives us the terms of the new covenant written down. That's why, and, Paul's, and Paul gives us the majority of them, 13 books, that's why it's very rare that you can go to any church in America and hear somebody say something and not mention Paul. You're going to hear about Paul a lot. You're going to hear stuff from Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, etc. So, the terms of the new covenant now are coming through three classes of people. So, take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are three groups of people who are bringing forth these terms of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 12. And I think it's going to be verse 20, 28. Verse 28. Now, it's, it's noteworthy here to notice the, the kind of the pecking order. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess healings? The answer to all these questions is no. Not everybody does this, but some people do perform in these special ways. Now, it is through the apostles and through the prophets and through the teachers that God is transmitting to the New Testament church the terms of the new covenant. So that's what they're, they're teaching the truth of the gospel. That's how you get all of Paul's letters. That's why Paul can say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's 1 Timothy 3. Let's turn there and look. 1 Timothy 3, 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Paul can say that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Peter says the same thing, similar, similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22, 20 through 22. Where he talks about holy men of old are moved by the Holy Spirit. So God is communicating through these prophets to the churches and he's telling them what he wants them to know. Now, not everything that the Apostle Paul wrote and not everything the Apostle Paul said or what Peter said or what they wrote, not all that stuff is written down. So the New Testament is only 27 books long, but the New Testament is, gives us this new covenant idea. And I hope that's not too, I hope that doesn't create too many questions in your mind. But it's during that 100-year period 70-year period, from 30 A.D. to 100 A.D., where we're getting the New Testament. So that's where your New Testament came from. The Apostle Paul writing, the other apostles writing, giving us the New Testament. Now, therefore, in the first 70 years of the Christian church, the, the charismatic Pentecostal idea of direct revelation from God, of prophets and, and heavenly messages and words of wisdoms and utterances of knowledge, these things were normative, for 70 years. Normative for 70 years. Now, you can divide that early church period into three groups, all right? Three periods. You have a pre-Paul period, 
Are you guys still with me? Because I start to feel like you're glazing over a little bit. In the, in the pre, you have the pre-Paul period. So we have Jesus, he dies on the cross, and he rises on what day? He rises on the third day, comes out of the grave. Pentecost comes. Now, from Pentecost to the conversion of the Apostle Paul is about five years. If you can trust the dates in the top of the column of your 1917 Schofield Bible, which I think you can, it's about five years. About five years. And then the Apostle Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9. And then all of Christianity changes because Paul becomes the major focus. So you have the pre-Paul period, and then you have the Paul period. Because Paul's ministry goes from about 35 A.D. to 65 A.D. So in that 30-year period, the Apostle Paul is writing his letters to the churches. He's doing his, he's doing his, his missionary and apostolic ministry. Christianity is spreading. So 30 years, you have Paul's letters are written in a 30-year period. Okay? 65 A.D., Paul dies. He has his head cut off by Emperor Nero. Paul's ministry comes to an end. And then you have a post-Paul period, which goes from 65 A.D. to 100 A.D. All right? You guys ready for a review? All right, here we go. You ready? <laughs> the first period is the, Paul period, is the pre-Paul period, which lasted how many, how many years? And then you have the, the Paul period, which lasts about how many years? 35. Well done, Jose. We'll promote you. <laughs> and then you have the post-Paul period, which lasts about, about 35 more years to, to the 100 A.D. So that's that period. In that, in that period, 65 A.D. to 100 A.D., you have the writing of the following books. You guys ready for this? My mind just went blank. First and Second Peter, James, uh, Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews probably written before, written before seventy A.D., but so it falls in the category. First and Second Peter, James, Jude, one, two, three, John, the Gospel of John, the Revelation, and then uh, I think I think that's everything. All that comes in that last in that last period. Now, so that that's that's an important thing. We'll see that in a minute. But at Pentecost, a new era is ushered in, and you have all these gifts. Now, so the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the Corinthian church, he tells them in chapter 12, he tells them that these gifts are good. Now, I'm not here to tell you that these spiritual gifts are bad. These are good. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, these are the spiritual gifts. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. This is 1 Corinthians 12.1. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be led, led away to mute idols. Then he goes on to say, here are the gifts of the Spirit. And then in chapter 13, Paul says, we should love each other, which is probably the sermon we should be giving today because we could all use a little work on our love. But, the, but at the end of that, as Paul's talking about the gifts, he tells them, these gifts, these special miracle-working revelatory gifts, they're going to end. They're going to end. Listen to the reading. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know that in part, I know, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, now he says these, three things, these things are going to stick around. Love, um, love, hope, and faith. Faith, hope, and love. So Paul warns them that some of these gifts are going to pass away. And they're going to pass away when the perfect thing comes. When that which is perfect comes, these things are going to pass away. And so think, think of this in a humorous sense, uh, ladies, when you met Mr. Wright. All the dudes you dated, you know, they're all great, right? They all had different virtues about them. But then one day, he walked through the door. And he's the only dude for the rest of your life, right? Ladies, is that right? That's how it is for guys. That's how it is for guys, you know. Once you meet, once you meet Miss Wright, I mean, all the other girls are ugly. Right? Come on, brothers! <laughs> <laughs> everybody, every there's only you know. I only know one pretty girl. Her name's Valerie. Of course, my daughters are also pretty too. I can't just say that <laughs> my daughters are all ugly. That'd be bad. <laughs> so, so when this perfect thing comes, these other things are going to go away. Now, this is a big debate. What is the perfect thing that he mentions? When the, when the perfect has come, that which is impartial, so fast, so pass away. Now, probably just grammatically, it looks like maturity will, will do it. Because he says, I was a child, I talked like a child, then I became a man, I talked like a man. So it looks like mat- maturity is a thing. But there are three views, and to be honest with you, I don't know which one is right. There are three views. I'm going to give you all three views, and then you know you can go home and Cast lots and figure out which one is right, okay? <laughs> Verse 1, just, here's view number 1. It is the view that the perfect will not come until we are all in heaven together and have perfect knowledge of all things. That's view number 1. Is that once we get to heaven, we'll know everything we're supposed to know. Once we get to heaven. Now here are, this is, this is called an appeal to authority. Here are the names of three people who believe that. All right? Number one is John MacArthur. Everybody knows about Big John. And then number two is John Gill. I hope everybody knows about the bigger John, John Gill. And then the third, <laughs> the third is Matthew Henry. But it just gets, it just, it, it's, it's all, but, but really, it's almost everybody. Almost all commentators and theologians, almost everybody says, this, the perfect, is going to be perfect knowledge when we all get to heaven. That's, that's, there's so many people say that. If you, if you went by majority vote, then that's what it is. View number two, it suggests that it is individual Christian maturity. Individual Christian maturity, which I, th- I think you can build both those ideas uh, from the text. The third view is a minority view. Um, I, was on, I was only able to locate... Just a very few people who hold this position, but it's very—it's a very common position amongst uh, cessationists or those who don't believe that this—that the spiritual gifts are still in effect, and that is the completion of the New Testament. And here, this is from a book. It's called "One Book Rightly Divided," and it says this: the full revelation of God remained 
in part until all 66 books of the Bible were completed. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, man had only partial revelation, but when John wrote the Apocalypse, the, the, book, of, the book of Revelation, that closed the door. And so the perfect coming is the Bible. Uh, and that's a guy, this, the guy who said that's a guy named Doug Stauffer, somebody you never heard of. But another person who said it, who you've all heard of probably, is a man named Dr. Charles Ryrie, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And that's from his, his study Bible notes, almost the exact same thing. When the New Testament comes, all these gifts pass away. That's the three views. Now, I don't, I don't know which one is... is, is I'm not going to die for any of those three views, but those are the three views. However, the third view, notably, John MacArthur says that that would obviously be wrong because the, how could the Corinthians know what Paul was talking about? Which puts us in an interesting position. When you want to interpret the Bible, you can't interpret the Bible through what it means to you in your time. You have to interpret the, interpret the Bible based on what it meant to them in their time. Context. The context, the historical context of the time. All right, so looks like we're 34 minutes in, and uh, we're almost done. Almost done. So there we have it. We have this word from Paul that says that these, and he mentions the two things, tongues and prophecy, that these will end. Prophecy, Paul goes on to say in chapter 14, he says, I wish that everybody would prophesy. It's better for everybody. if that. Would, so Paul goes on to talk about these gifts. He says these gifts are all good. But he's already told us they're going to end. Uh, some people say that the construction of the, of the Greek in chapter 13 kind of indicates that the gifts will just kind of peter out over time. They'll just kind of wind down and come to an end. Now, Paul says these things are going to end. And I think they did end. And here are my reasons for that. I think they did come to an end. Because in Paul's last three letters, when he writes to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and he writes to Titus, these are called the pastoral letters. These are instructions for pastors. Paul gives Timothy and Titus zero instruction about the pastoral regulation or use of these spectacular gifts. He tells them nothing about it. He does tell them about lots of other things, but he doesn't tell them how to regulate these, these sign gifts, right? So, and then... After Paul dies, in about what year? 65 A.D., which brings to end what period? The Paul period. You guys are excellent. I'll tell you what. You guys are doing so good, there'll be no service tonight. <laughs> After the Paul period, you have a period of of. Uh, you have these other letters that are written, and in all of those letters, including the very long letter of John to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Revelation, there's no mention anywhere about the prophet about these gifts. It just kind of, it just comes to an end. Now, so you have the post-Paul period, nobody talks about it, <clears throat> and then you have no significant ministry of these extraordinary gifts for 1,800 years until you get to the year 1900. Now, to me, that length of silence, and most, and most people who are cessationists, they say that, that prolonged period of no spectacular ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the special sign gifts, is powerful. 1,800 years of silence. Sounds, that, that's, that's, pretty bold, that's pretty big. 
I think, it, I think it really says something. Now, so this leads us to think that um, the reemergence of the spectacular gifts in 1900 is a little, is a little, a little, a little, a little uh, suspicious. Suspicious. I'm gonna give you five reasons for that, and then 15 more reasons. <laughs> I'm around, I'm around the edge of preaching too long. Keep going. Randy says keep going. If you agree with Randy, say amen. <laughs> so, around 1900, uh, there, is a, there is a reactivation of the sign gifts of the spectacular gifts around 1900. It begins in Topeka, Kansas. It begins through the, the teaching ministry of a guy named Charles Parm. Charles Parm. He's the primary source of this idea that tongues and prophecy are something that could be had again if they were sought for. They could happen again if they were sought for. And so he, he teaches his people to seek for them, and they'll get them, and that's what happens. Now, when, when it first happened, somebody spoke in tongues. Somebody there said, hey, that has, we, don't, we, we have no idea what you just said, so that has to be a foreign language. You must be from Arkansas or somewhere like that. It's a foreign tongue. So what they did was they, they believed that this was just like Pentecost, that now these people spoke in an unknown tongue. It must be a foreign language. So we could send these people who have the gift of tongues to China or to Japan, and they could go and preach the gospel without having to take the time to learn a language. Wouldn't that really speed up the missionary process? Ask our missionaries who are going to language school, learning these far-out languages. Don't they, they wish <laughs> they could just go and preach and be heard in the right language. So these people, they, they sent some people to a foreign country. They, they came back. And when they came back, they were disappointed because when they got over there and, did the, and spoke in tongues, in the heavenly tongue, the people over there said, what are y'all doing? We don't, you, 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 you're not making any sense to us at all. So they came back and they had to rethink what that meant. And so they, they came back and, and they re they decided, well, it must not be what must not be that. But that began in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, then a man named Charles Seymour took it to Houston, Texas, and then all the way to California, where in California there's a huge outbreak of, of this ecstatic uh, speaking in tongues and healings and all kinds of miracles are taking place in, in a place called Azusa Street. And you can go there today and see it today if you want. So that so it began with this unusual man named Charles Parm. Now, usually in logic, ad hominem or attacking the person's character is usually seen as a weak position. Nevertheless, <laughs> Google Charles Parm and read about him and you'll see what I mean, okay? Secondly, the rapid growth of the charismatic movement was among people who were disenchanted with the Orthodox Christian religion. Now, in, in, in the book, A Popular History of the Assemblies of God, written by Edith Blumhofer as a Ph.D. from Harvard, from Harvard uh, I was going to say Harvard Seminary, but it's just Harvard. Uh, she says that the reason why Pentecostalism really took off was because people who are in mainline Orthodox denominations uh, were, were bored with church, and they wanted something new, something fresh. And so, because... This uh, Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, outpouring happened outside of Orthodox Christianity. 
they viewed this as God saying he's done with orthodoxy. And so it's a restoration movement. And so, um, so they're outside the norms of Christianity. Right off the bat, they, they decided that they, uh, that they didn't need creeds or confessions. And so in 1911, when the Assemblies of God was organized in Hot Springs, Arkansas, they had no confession of faith, no doctrinal standards. All you had to do was believe that the gifts were in and the salvation was by faith and you were in. Well, right off the bat, they realized that they had made an error because within three years, they had to draw up doctrinal standards and make a confession of faith because so many errors were coming in. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't just anything you want to believe. We still have to go with what the Bible says and what kind of Christians have historically, and go with what Christians have historically believed. So they had to drop these confessions of faith, which has kept the assemblies of God basically fairly conservative down through the years because they had a confession of faith. Okay? Number three. Uh, the growth of the Pentecostal movement was um, due in some point to the novel approach to the second coming which is a new doctrinal system, brace yourself, called dispensationalism, which appeared at that time. Because dispensationalism said there are seven definite periods of the church, the seventh being the Laodicean church period, which is a time of decline and apostasy. And so here's the Pentecostal movement who says we're in a time of spiritual decline and apostasy, and now the Holy Spirit is coming and showing us that all these churches are bad. So here's the new thing. Now, uh, when I read that, because that's in either Bloomhopper's book, I thought, that is fascinating, because I'm not a dispensationalist. So I called a friend of mine who is a John Nelson Darby expert in Canada, and thank God for Facebook. (laughs) Amen, John? (laughs) Because via Facebook, I was able to call my friend and talk to him face-to-face. And I said, I told him, I said, this book, this is history of the sins of God, they say, they name John Nelson Darby by name and say he is a contributing factor to the rise of the charismatic movement. My friend, if, you, if, 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 <laughs> if he had been holding an egg, it would have boiled. He got so mad. That's not true. That's an error. <laughs> I said, well, they say it. And he said, well, he said, it may have had some of those reper- repercussions. But he said, he said, I don't think that's really a way to do it. He said, Nelson Darby w- was already aware of that thinking in his time, and he, and he said that he didn't agree with it. But nevertheless, this last day's idea um, contributed to the rise of the charismatic movement because in Joel chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible says, I will send you both the early and the latter rains, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know I preach too long because that usually doesn't come on twice. <laughs> so it talks about the early and latter rains, and the early rains were the, the day of Pentecost, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then the latter rains are interpreted to be this latter day's charismatic renewal. So the, these are reasons that cause us to be a little bit skeptical about it. Um, number four, the, the restorationist tendencies put them in a questionable status because Anytime somebody comes along and says, we're, we're restoring true church order, we're res- the church is so corrupt, there's no true church on the earth, I think that's a, that's a pretty bold statement. Uh, number five, and I guess I'll end with this. Number five. If you, com- if you compare the two things, 
If you compare first century charismatic, the first century charismatic outpouring with the 20th century charismatic outpouring, you don't really see the same thing. You see different things. First of all, the Pentecostal tongues on the day of Pentecost produced the evangelization of 16 different people groups who did not speak a common language. So you saw massive missionary evangelization in one day in a big way that changed the world. Just just huge. Pentecostalism, as we know it now with the practice of tongues, has nothing to do with missionary work. And, to, and just to be kind, I'm going to say I, ha- I really have no idea what it's about. Because it do- there doesn't seem to be a consensus about what it is. Secondly, the Pentecostal prophecy of the apostolic era, the Paul era, pre-Paul, the Paul era, the post-Paul era, produced the New Testament. And Pentecostalism, in, in a modern sense, hasn't produced anything on the level of the New Testament. So if it's really God speaking, giving new revelation, where is it? So they gave, so they gave us the New Testament. Thirdly, Pentecostal empowered evangelism in the first century changed the Roman Empire and subdued the Roman Empire. So much so that after 200 years of Christianity being in existence in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire basically becomes, for all practical intents and purposes, becomes what? It becomes Christian. So it's, it's not producing the same, the same thing. So, if you compare the two, the 20th century version has produced very little enduring Monuments of the Christian faith compared to what we see in the book of Acts. So much so that I would say that the whole thing is, uh, is doubtful in my, in, my view. in my view. So there you go. All in favor of being done, say amen. Now.